So welcome back to Leaders Consultant, the show that brings you interviews with experts in the trenches at the forefront of consulting, sharing their own perspectives, tips and resources they picked up along the way for your benefit. On today's episode, we're joined by Dory Clark, who is a strategy consultant, executive coach and keynote speaker. Uh, who's worked with a long list of illustrious clients, including Google, Microsoft, Morgan Stanley, World Bank, the list goes on. Uh, she's also well, uh, Wall Street Journal bestselling author, having written several books, including uh, Entrepreneurial You, Reinventing You, Stand Out, which was named number one leadership book of the year by Inc. Magazine, and most recently, uh, The Long Game. She's also been named uh, one of the top 50 business thinkers in the world by Thinkers 50, which is like the Oscars of management thinking, uh, as far as I take it. And she's also a regular contributor to Harvard Business Review. But most importantly, today, she's now a featured guest on the Leaders of Consulting podcast. So, Dory, thanks for coming on the show. Hey, Jonathan, I'm glad to be here with you. Yeah, great to have you on. So, Dory, would you like to kick us off with one unique approach, tip, tool, or strategy that you think other consultants should really know about? Absolutely. So one of the concepts that has become especially meaningful to me in, in as we sort of navigate this post-COVID terrain is the idea of heads up and heads down mode, which is something that I talk about in my book, The Long Game. So basically at its uh, denominational base, uh, heads up mode is when you are in a, sort of an exploratory space. You know, you're looking around. I like to think about it like Punxsutawney Phil the gopher. You know, you've got your head up out of the ground. You're searching. You're like, what's, ha- what's happening? What's exciting? What's new? What's interesting? You're filling your cup with stimuli. And that's a pretty, you know, cool and sexy place to be. Um, But of course, also, we don't always want to be like that, because we need to implement some of these ideas. So then there's heads down mode, which is, you know, you're down in your burrow, you're just doing the thing, you know what you need to do, and you are making it happen. And for most people, we tend to sort of naturally gravitate toward one of those modes more than others. I think my semi-scientific diagnosis is that for a lot of us during COVID, during the pandemic, we were sort of forced into heads down mode because there weren't a lot of stimuli to be had. Like you could, you couldn't really meet new people. You couldn't really go out. You just, you had to sort of, you know, uh, plow through and accomplish what you needed to, because for a lot of us, there was a great sense of economic peril as we were figuring out, um, you know, how to keep things going with radically changed circumstances. And so, you know, there's, there's virtue in doing what you need to do, but it is also true. It's equally true that we need to be thoughtful and recognize that over time, it's important for these things to, to balance out. I first was introduced to this concept um, by a friend of mine named Jared Kleinert, who I interviewed for my book, Entrepreneurial You. And he was talking about it kind of in the in the sense of being careful not to fall prey to shiny object syndrome, which a lot of entrepreneurs and, and consultants sometimes do. But I think that the um, the reverse is also true, that for so many of us, we've gotten in the habit of being heads down over the past couple of years. And now might be the time for us to to really thoughtfully reset and say, all right, I've been doing the thing. Maybe I actually need to um, that I, I ought to uh, sort of you know try to right the scales a little bit. And if you haven't been going out or meeting people or trying new things or going to a conference or experimenting with something, maybe this is now the moment to do it. So I think keeping in balance the concepts of heads up and heads down 
can be really valuable to a lot of consultants out there. And it's something that I try to be mindful of. Yeah. So in a, a sense, it's it's about striking the right sort of balance between the two. And is that something that you, I'm, I'm curious about, you know, is that something that you approach and you think about on a daily basis? It's like, okay, I've got heads down. Or is it something that you think about more kind of longer term? I'm sure I'm curious about the kind of time scale of that, that you think of it. Yeah. For, you know, for me personally, I think it's more useful to do it over a longer time frame. I mean, certainly, uh, as I was saying, I mean, just during COVID in general, we were sort of forced into this one way of being. And so it's almost never a problem. I mean, if we think about something, you know, which is not dissimilar, like kind of work-life balance, right? It's not that, you know, you need to have this pie chart and every single day you need to have, you know, this amount of time with the kids and this amount of time, you know, reading your books and this amount of time with your friends. It just, it doesn't really work that way. And it would probably be counterproductive if we were like, oh, I'm I'm 13 minutes short, you know, how am I going to make that up? But, you know, over the course of a longer period of time, whether it's a week or whether it's a month, it's useful to be sort of asking those questions. If you're an accountant in the middle of tax season, you're probably going to be spending less time with your family. That's just that's just the way it is. And the truth is, it's not a problem. As long as you make it up somewhere else, the problem comes when you get in that habit and then you never make it up and you become one-sided and, you know, probably dissatisfying for you. And it's certainly dissatisfying for the people around you. The point is that if we have a, you know, a longer time horizon, we can actually see, oh, okay, it's okay to over-index here as long as I am thoughtful about how I will balance it out elsewhere. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, I'm, I'm guessing this is a, a principle that a lot of authors often apply. I think of uh, people talking about how they're gonna, you know, move to Thailand, go to Chiang Mai, and and basically get rid of all the other external stimuli and just get heads down, write write those men, you know, write all the the missing chapters and so on. Is that something as as an author yourself? Do you find it useful to kind of change your environment so that you don't have so many other competing commitments or, or things that you know distractions really from the the work that you should be doing? Well, you know, on on one hand, I, I certainly think that if you're trying to do a sort of large scale project of any kind, but especially a creative project, you know, it it is good as much as you can to uh, to try to carve out space so so that you can do it. I mean, that just makes intuitive sense. But this is a place, Jonathan, where I definitely have strong opinions because I got my start as a journalist. And one advantage of that, one thing that journalists learn really early on is there is no such thing as writer's block. Has anyone ever noticed that doesn't exist for journalists because it's not allowed to exist. If you are a journalist with writer's block, you very rapidly become something else, which is fired. You have to perform. And I think that the difference is that a journalist is not treating every piece that they're working on like some you know precious work of art that you know needs to be polished and shined and oh is it good enough you know it's like like oh my god like get get over yourself is it accurate yeah. is it okay is it decent okay good turn it in because the most important thing is, you know, is it on time? And it is it, it, you know, not libelous. And as long as you can meet those two criteria, like go do it. Um, I think that for a lot of people, a lot of consultants, a lot of coaches, we set ourselves up for failure because we create these almost impossible conditions in our head where it's like, well, I could write the book 
if only I had six weeks off or six months off or the cabin in the woods or the beach hut in Chiang Mai. I mean, I hope you get those things, but but those are hard things to kind of make happen in the course of most everyday professionals' lives. And so that becomes the excuse, that becomes the barrier. And it's like, meanwhile, you don't need the cabin. You really don't. I have now written four books and I have written all of them in my house, not in a cabin. I wrote them where I live and I wrote them while maintaining my workload. You know, I mean, my quick ritual, I mean, everybody does it differently, but in case this is helpful to everybody, basically my strategy, I can write once I have created a a reasonable outline of a book, you know, which can take a while because you know, it's not like it's so hard to make an outline of a book, but you sometimes want to take time to think it through and make sure you really understand the topic. But once I have a decent outline, it takes me between two and three months to write a first draft of a 200 to 250 page book. And I typically do it. I am writing three to four days per week and I do it for about three to four hours a time. So, you know, cause I want to have the time to, to kind of go deep into it. So my typical schedule would be you know, let's say it's Monday, Wednesday, Friday, and Sunday mornings, let's say. And so I'll just carve it out from nine nine to 12 or nine to one, something like that. And then, you know, I'll take a lunch break and then I'm doing regular work the rest of the time. I'm not excusing myself from that. Um, you can fit it in if you are, if you're willing to do it and just be thoughtful about your scheduling. So I really want to encourage people who might've thought like, oh, I need to have X and Y and Z in place, you know, only then can I write a book? No, that's, that's actually not true. You can do it now if you, you want it badly enough. Yeah. Uh, that's interesting. Yeah. I suppose it's sort of creating force and well with journalists, you have those deadlines that are forcing functions, but in everyday life, you can use your, sometimes your time constraints to your own advantage, you know, oh, the kids get up at this time. So I'm going to try and get this done before that, before that time. And I'm going to hold myself accountable to that. Yeah. Absolutely. Yep. That's great. And something you, you describe in the book is about thinking in waves. And I, I'm curious, like, how, how does that relate to, you know, what you've described in terms of, you know, heads down, heads, heads up, um, you know, modes and thinking about things in, in terms of, you know, phases, um, can you describe to our, our listeners what you mean by thinking in waves? Yeah, absolutely. They, they definitely are related concepts. Um, so thinking in waves is kind of answering a little bit more specifically the question, what should I be doing? What should I be spending my time on? You know, heads up and heads down is sort of like, okay, are you getting inspired or are you executing? And thinking in waves is about, all right, if you actually are executing on something, what should you be executing on? And what I've what I've come to understand is it, it's really helpful to, to you know just get back to basics and understand that humans are animals and we are rhythmic creatures. You know our our entire lives are governed by circadian rhythms. You know that's why we get tired at night. And yet in the business world, we often try to operate ourselves. You know especially if you are a self employed consultant. We often try to operate ourselves like we're robots, like, oh, well, I should be capable of doing all my work, you know, all the time uh, and, and not really understanding like, oh, sometimes I'm going to be much better equipped to do certain work than others. And so how can I lean into that rather than trying to ignore that reality? So specifically the four waves that I talk about in the long game, 
Um, the first one is uh, is the learning wave, which you know hopefully makes sense to folks. That if you're starting something new, whether it's you know working with a new client or you know if you're employed somewhere, it's you know, starting a new job or you know just just going into something. You, you don't want to be charging ahead right away. You've got to get your lay of the land. You've got to get oriented to understand how do things work here? Like what's what's the deal? So the first wave is really learning and taking it in so that when you do contribute, you can be useful and thoughtful and relevant. That's number one. Number two is actually at a certain point, you know, once you've soaked in enough knowledge, that's when you need to start contributing, you know, because you, you can't be the wallflower forever. You need to start sharing your own ideas. So it's about kind of creating ideas, creating content and sharing that. And that could be anything from, you know, something very public, like, you know, writing articles and creating thought leadership to something small, like starting to speak up more in meetings and say, well, hey, how about this? Has this been tried? But eventually you've got to start adding that value. Um, the next wave is about, you know, connecting and really making sure that you are uh, building relationships that is going to be necessary for you so that your ideas are better received, so that you are plugged into the information flow, so that, so that when you want to accomplish something, that it's a lot easier to do it. And then, you know, finally, um, there's what I call the reaping phase, which is, you know, you got all the pieces dialed in. And so it's like, oh, fantastic. I've made it. You know, it's like, People recognize my value. I'm getting rewarded for it. This is great. And one of the challenges that I think a lot of us have as humans is, you know, this is a pretty nice place to be. So a lot of us want to tend to stay in the reaping phase. But something we have to do if we want to be smart about it is recognize that at a certain point, we need to shake ourselves out of that torpor of bliss and go back to the learning phase because otherwise we're going to get very stale. And eventually our relevance is going to decline because if you haven't learned anything in a long time, you know, people get a little bit sick of your shtick and the world has moved on. So we've got to be smart about continually learning and continually growing. Right. Another thing that you touch on is also in the in the book, The Long Game, is is having that 20% time to work on those projects or the side projects of those things that you really enjoy. So I, I was thinking to myself, you know, because I, I've also thought about, you know, what mode am I? Am I, am I learning contributing? You know, am I doing all these different things? Uh, but one of my favorite things to do is tinker. So if I could add anything to that list, it would be tinkering. So what do you, what do you tinker? Do you mean like mechanical things or what, what form does that take? I just, I, I just, I just love geeking out on the latest technology and the apps and the platforms. Uh, for example, the other day I was, I was looking at text replacement. For my, for a lot of people, that might not be a very exciting thing, but I was like, oh, this is amazing. I could be like 2% more productive with my days. <laughs> Every 2% counts, man. I love that. That's great. That's great. Absolutely. Um, but, but one of the things that you, you, uh, you heavily encourage is, is following, you know, your interests and optimizing for things that you are interesting in. I'm curious how one can reconcile that with the main premise that you outline in the book, which is about long-term thinking. Because oftentimes I think optimizing for interesting often means that you have this bright, shiny object syndrome and you're like, oh, you know, this thing, that thing. But you quickly, you know, there's usually that spurt of excitement at the beginning and then you kind of lose interest. How can you reconcile that with more longer-term thinking? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. So one of the things that I have found very existentially comforting about, you know, long-term thinking that I talk about in the long game mm. is that if you are thinking long enough, you know, let's, I mean, for the sake of argument, let's call it 10 years down the line, 20 years down the line, something like that. 
you actually don't have to be very precise about how you're going to get there, right? Like sometimes people they get kind of weird about it and they're like, well, you know, I, I wouldn't want to put that down as a goal because I don't really know how to get there or whatever. It's like, it's like, excuse me, like how hubristic is it to even imagine that if I have a 20 year goal that I know precisely how I'm going to get there. I mean, the world can change a lot in 20 years, right? I mean, 20 years ago, we didn't have this, we, you know, we didn't have smartphones. That's kind of a big deal now. Uh, 20 years ago, we really for sure did not think there'd be a global pandemic that shut down the world for two years. So to imagine that I could even, um, you know, fathom the possibility of like, oh yeah, I, I, I know what the 204 moves are between now and 20 years is kind of ridiculous. So what, what you really need if you're making a long-term goal is you need, you need an intention. You know, you need, you need a sort of basic, I think I'd like to do this. And then you need this sort of general direction. All you need to know is the end step and then the next step. And there's a lot of fuzziness in between, but that is okay. And so um, the good news is that you can continue to sort of refine hypotheses. And so if you discover something that, that you think is interesting, you know, I mean, I, I even think that it's it's fine in a lot of ways to pursue something that, that doesn't even seem aligned with your with your long-term goal because you know what? Maybe it turns out it secretly is, but you just haven't realized it yet. Maybe you will discover uh, something better as a long-term goal. That's that's all right. I mean, you want to keep moving. I think the biggest danger is people who just don't do anything and sink into a kind of stasis. But if you continually adopt the mindset of learning and experimenting and refining your hypotheses so that you can say, you know what, I like, let's say a person, let's say maybe it's a young person, right? They're like, you know what, I really love books. I want to do something with books. And, you know, maybe their idea is like, you know, I think I want to be an agent. So maybe they do an internship at a literary agency and they realize, oh, this isn't what I want. That's fine. That's great. That's good information because it enables you to sort of refine those choices so that over the next, you know, 10 years, they're able to find a much better way to fit into the publishing industry that would feel useful and meaningful to them. And all of us at any age can continue doing that. Yeah, that's interesting. Well, one of the examples that you you had in the book as well was a was a chap who uh I believe he was a, he was a reporter in one of the not so sexy industries, something like oil and gas or something along those yes. lines. Yes, who uh, who had that sort of interest in, in you know fine restaurants and was able to convince his employers to do some of that on the side. So I thought that was that was a really interesting example of of optimizing for interesting and thinking about sort of long term. Oh, you know, would this be an area that I'd like to move into as well? Yeah, and good callback, Jonathan. I, you got you got extra points because, of course, that's a story from my first book, Reinventing You. So, thank you for calling back to the other part of the oove. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. And and another thing you also you also suggest, you know, if people are are struggling to think, okay, well, you know, I'm so busy, I don't really, you know, got to pay the bills and so on. I don't necessarily, you know, have even the headspace to really think about it. Is to think about, you know, what what actually. Uh, did you enjoy doing as a kid? Uh, one story that always I always find fascinating is: Have you heard of a, a lady called Jane Goodall? Uh sure. Yeah, I've actually met Jane Goodall. She's awesome. Yeah, but she, I, like, I remember seeing her speak and talk about how she, you know, as a as a young girl, she enjoyed her favorite 
bedtime story was Tarzan's stories. And, you know, when people said, oh, what do you want to do? She's like, oh, I want to hang out with Tarzan. And people thought, oh, you know, just a silly, you know, childhood dream. Um, but now she's like the, the world's foremost expert on chimpanzees and, um, you know, has done a lot of amazing research around, you know, the, the similarities between their behavior and humans and so on. So I thought that was, that was quite a good example that illustrated your, you know, what you've, you've written about as well. Yeah. I love, I love that. Um, yeah, she, she actually has a, uh, charity that she started called Roots and Shoots, which is about helping kids get interested in the environment and, uh, ecosystems. And years ago, one of the, one of the early, uh, consulting engagements that I did was actually do a little bit of work for one of the chapters of Roots and Shoots. So that was, uh, that was kind of fun. But, uh, but yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, it is certainly not uncommon for a lot of adults to, you know, they're, they're so consumed with their job because they have to be, or at least they feel like they have to be. And if you, if you take that and family obligations, there's often just literally not room for anything else. And so there's a lot of people I know you ask them like, Oh, what do you do for fun? Do you have a hobby? And they just like shoot daggers at you. They're like, they're like, you know, F you, (laughs) why would you even think I would have a hobby? (laughs) Like, no, no. And, uh, and, you know, that's, that's a hard place to be because if they're even trying to imagine a kind of better future for themselves, like, you know, if it's like, oh no, but go to your happy place, what would you do if you, you know, and they're like, uh, you know, it's been like 10 years. Like, I have no idea. What would I do for fun? I don't know what it looks like, but a way that you can kind of tap into it actually is, as, as you were saying, Jonathan, thinking through what you like to do as a kid, because, you know, that, that at least is a moment you know, we vote with our feet when we are able to do it, right? I mean, oftentimes as adults, we're not because there's a crush of responsibilities. But as a kid, you had a lot less responsibilities. And so you actually had free time, you know, you probably had summers or you had, you know, when you finished your homework, what could, you know, what could you do? And those are the things that can provide clues. I mean, probably not literal transpositions, uh, you know, because we're not like necessarily being like Lego champions, or at least not many of us are like Lego champions as adults. But it's very illustrative to to say, you know, did you like building things? Did you like computers? Did you like comics? Did you like, you know, in my case, appropriately enough, I liked writing stories. I was constantly writing stories. And that now is something that I you know, do a lot of in my work. So kind of whatever the adult update is, those are things that sort of show you hints of what you are naturally drawn to, which can be useful. Yeah, absolutely. I also like to think of, you know, what sort of things do I like to do when I'm maybe commuting somewhere? Or what am I reading? Or what am I listening? Or what am I watching when I'm, you know, using my exercise bike in the morning? Uh, But also sometimes asking my question, you know, could I be you know, am I making the most use of that time or or what content am I actually consuming? Uh, is it actually something that's aligning with what I'm ultimately trying to achieve with the rest of my day and so on as well? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, fantastic. Um, lastly, I just wanted to sort of also uh, touch on the topic of uh, networking. I was uh, I was going through some of your, your social accounts and I saw a recent picture of yours with uh, Nick Gray. Uh, who has a, a fantastic framework, which he, he turned into a book around hosting cocktail parties. Uh, I'm glad to say we host, I hosted my own one recently. Oh, how nice. <laughs> I'm, I'm sure he will be pleased. I know he has his goal of uh, sparking, I think it's 500 cocktail parties. So, uh, so that's great. But, um, but yeah, it's a, it's a fantastic 
you know, as, as I'm sure you'll agree, a fantastic kind of container and a way of bringing together a disparate group of people, you know, who might be, you know, you just might see sort of peripherally, but would be really nice to get to know on a, uh, you know, on a more friendly basis. So a really nice way. And I know networking is something that you touch on with, you know, the long game. Um, but I'm curious, curious, like if there are any, I don't know, counterintuitive approaches or, or things that people could, you know, maybe consider when they're going about building relationships with people that you could, you could share with us. Yeah, thank you so much, Jonathan. Um, well, you know, one one of the the points that I make in the long game, which is uh, something that that I developed and haven't seen talked about elsewhere, is what I call my no asks for a year rule. And I I feel I you know I want to put it out in the world because I feel like the world would be a better place if we abided by this, um, because I I think most of us have probably experienced what I will call sort of a networking hit and run where, you know, you meet, maybe you meet somebody at a party or you friend somebody on social media. And then like literally the next day, they're like, Hey, Jonathan, so great meeting you. Hey, I see you're connected to so-and-so insert famous person. Would you mind introducing me to so-and-so? Um, because I'd really like to talk to him about my business or, you know, something. And it's just like, Oh my God. Like, you know, and of course what this person doesn't realize is like 10 people a week ask you to connect to this person. And they might think, oh, it's just like so unique. Of course, Jonathan's going to help me out here. They don't realize they are, they're just part of the stampede of users that are coming to you looking for you know a way to sort of instrumentalize you en route to Elon Musk or whoever the famous person is you know. And if you're on the receiving end of that, it feels pretty offensive and pretty fast. You're going to rule out this person. They might be a nice person, but they have blown it because you're like, wow, all they want from me is to connect with Elon Musk. That's that's pretty lame. You know, they don't want to know me. Um, so the relationship is is officially blown. And I think, you know, some people do that who are legitimate jerks, but I think some people do it who are nice people, but just don't necessarily know better about the etiquette of networking. And so I really want to hammer this home that if you're meeting somebody, I like to advise people, do not ask your new contact for anything for at least a year. And you know, and by anything, I mean, it's, you know, it's fine to ask them normal questions, of course, you know, and it's fine to, you know, oh, hey, Jonathan, I see you're doing a, you know, you have a transcription service. What transcription service do you use? That's fine. You know, or it's certainly fine to ask people to do something with you because that's how you get to be friends. But what I'm talking about specifically is avoiding politically sensitive asks, you know, Jonathan, can you introduce me to your editor? Jonathan, can you introduce me to your famous friend or, you know, whatever it is? Because those are the things that really require a high level of trust. And if you've just met someone, you don't have that yet. So wait for at least a year because during that time, it enables A, Jonathan, to know that I'm not a user because I've been investing time in getting to know him. And B, it helps you not be a user because you know, hey, I'm going to get to know Jonathan for Jonathan's sake. I'm not going to get anything out of it. You know, we're just, we're I'm going to have the pleasure of his company. We're going to become legitimate friends. And, you know, a, a year is sort of a squishy number. I certainly don't mean on day 366, you know, hit him up. But, uh, but broadly speaking, it means wait until you're actually friends to ask for something. Because when you're actually friends, it won't matter anymore. It won't matter because you want to give freely to your friends and receive freely from your friends. But up until the point where you are friends, B, 
be really careful because it's easy to alienate someone if you move too fast. Yeah, interesting. It reminds me of a, a podcast I listened to called Backstage Careers, which is a show where the, the host interviews people who've secured these amazing you know, apprenticeships with these really super famous uh, entrepreneurs. Uh, but I remember one chap he, he spoke to was, uh, was best friends with uh, Jamie Foxx. Didn't well, knew him because of um, because of the work he did in in LA and the sort of movie industry and so on. But he was saying something along similar lines, you know, just like famous people and and their second degree network are just you know they're just tired of people asking stuff from them all the time. But yeah, it was it was interesting how yeah it was just a very it was an in, a friendship that you know with someone who. I don't know, like was from originally, you could tell by his accent, he's originally from Northern Ireland. One of the last people you think like this would be, you know, just a lad from Northern Ireland would be like best friends with Jamie Foxx. Um, but he was, he was instrumental to actually uh, helping the uh, Jamie Foxx interview on the Tim Ferriss show come together, which is an amazing, absolutely amazing interview. Um, but he just did it because he would like, he was like, Oh, this would be amazing for Jamie. This would be a really great thing for both Jamie and Tim. This should really happen. Uh, so he was able to kind of put it together, but yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's, that's great. And it's a, a perfect example. Yeah. Excellent. Well, um, Dory, I, I know, uh, you know, time is precious, so I do want to, uh, you know, be conscientious of your time, but I would love for you to, uh, maybe just share with, um, you know, our listeners, if they want to find out more, um, about the work you're doing, uh, if they want to learn about the book, um, where, where's the best place to go? Jonathan, thank you so much. It's great to get to talk with you. Um, so yeah, the new book is called The Long Game, How to Be a Long-Term Thinker in a Short-Term World. And uh, of course, you can get it in all the you know Amazon or the other booky places that one can get it. Uh, but in addition, uh, I have a long game strategic thinking self-assessment that helps folks apply the principles of strategic thinking to their own lives and their own careers. And so if anyone would like to get that, it's available for free at doryclark.com slash the long game. Excellent. Well, Dory, it's been great conversation. I'm very grateful for you sharing so much today. And yeah, great to have you on the show. Thank you so much, Jonathan. Great to be here. All right. Cheers. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Leaders of Consulting podcast. And as always, you can find out more information about this episode and all the resources mentioned at leadersofconsulting.com.